0: I've said this so many times, I think you know it by heart now, that Romans 1 to 11 is highly, highly theological. It was tough for us to plow through Romans chapter 1 to 11. But from 12 onwards, it gets very practical. And last week, we explore how the Christian is to relate to the government, and we learned that as Christians, we should submit ourselves to the ruling authorities. And this morning... The Lord's purpose for us is how we may relate to one another. And I thought that this is such a appropriate sermon when we start our church in the new premise. We want to start on the right footing, and part of starting on the right footing would be to relate well with one another. Now, Paul goes straight into the text, and I'd like you to keep your finger on the text if you have your word with you. Paul says right away, Owe oh, no one anything. And Paul says, if you should owe anyone anything at all, owe them your love. <laughs> I like that. Don't owe anyone anything. But if, if you have to owe anyone anything at all, owe them the love that is still in your heart. Tucked there, but not given out. Give it away. Owe no one the love that you should be able to give away. I like that. And then verse, but, but why does he say that? You know, why is this such an important commandment? Look at verse 8b, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. It looks like it's so easy to fulfill the law of God. And <laughs> What's that? Just love one another, and you have fulfilled the law of God. How, how easy can that be? That if you want to fulfill the law of God in your heart, in your mind, in your entire being, just love one another selflessly, and you would have fulfilled the law of God. Isn't that so simple and yet so hard? But the question is, why? Why would just loving one another be fulfilling the law of God? Now, I want to push on. Look at verse 9. God's way is very simple. God says, love people. If you love people, you would have fulfilled the law of God. But, but how is it that just by loving people, we are fulfilling the law of God? Look at verse 9 to 10. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. All these other commandments, he says, whatever the commandments are, they can all be summed up in one little short line, and that is, and that is this. Love people as you would have loved yourself. Now, I scratch my head a lot over this text and ask myself if I were to love people as I love myself, the first thing I should do is to ask myself, how do I love myself? Whoa well, I, I, I got sick. I got really sick thinking about this because I love myself so very much. I care for myself. I groom myself. I keep myself clean. I pamper myself. I forgive myself whenever I do wrong. I forgive myself. I'm quick to forgive myself. And God says, you are to love Other people just exactly the way you love yourself. And I come so short of loving other people the way I'm loving myself. And and this is the key. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 9. It is God's purpose that we not hurt other people but love them. And then verse 10 says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. I thought about it this week and I thought, all right, what if I bolt my door, shut my windows, and do nothing wrong to my neighbor? Is that sufficient? That I do them no wrong? Is doing my neighbors no wrong sufficient for me in my heart to fulfill the law of God? And I begin to think, well, I may be committing no wrong, but but in shutting myself in, I am omitting the good that I can do to them. See, we've forgotten now that there is such a thing as the sins of commission. You commit murder, you commit adultery. This is the sin of commission. But we forget that there is such a thing called the sins of omission. When you know what is right and you do it not, it is sin. As a young man, I still remember, I memorized James 4.17. It has never left me until today, and that's what. 30, 40 years now, James 4:17, I could just cite it like that is so easy to him who knows what is right and does not do that to him. It is sin. There was an old bishop who was dying on his deathbed. Now, you would think that he was a bishop and is dying. What would his last final confession be? This is exactly, exactly what he said. He says, Lord, and before he breathed, breathed his last breath, he says, Lord, forgive me most of all my sins of omission. The good that he would have done, could have done, should have done, he left undone. So loving your neighbor is not just doing them no harm. It means doing good, going out to them. And doing good to them, caring for their welfare. Now, if we're to love people like that, how are we to love? And this text is just so complete, really. This is one of the easiest sermons I have ever prepared. By Tuesday evening, it was almost all done. It's never been like that ever before. Saturday evening, I'm still struggling most of the time. Uh, it's, it's so logical, this text that is just read out for you. One question asks, another, question, another answer goes right into the text. And so the question is this. If we are to love one another, how are we to love one another? Look at verse 12b, two ways. Cast off the work of darkness, put on the armor of light. Negatively, we are to cast off the work of darkness, verse 12. Positively, we are to put on the armor of light. So these are my two points for this morning. So negatively first, cast off the work of darkness. If you are to love one another, first thing you ought to do is to cast off works of darkness. Now what's that? And again, the text is so clar- so clarifying. Look, look at verse 13. Walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling, not in jealousy. It's strange. When I look at it this week, I thought, why would loving people be explained in terms of sexual sins? Isn't this quite puzzling? That this whole text is about loving one another. And as soon as he tells you how to love one another, he says, refrain from sexual Permissiveness. What's happening now? What's, what's the big deal with sexual sin? That even now when God says to love one another, he tells us to be sexually pure. What, what's happening? If you have not noted this before ever, please note it. Please note down this morning that virtually all over the New Testament, the call to sexual purity is very high on the list. It's everywhere in the Bible that we be sexually pure. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, This is the will of God for you, that you abstain from immorality. Abstinence is biblical. And total abstinence is a biblical command. Ephesians 4, or 5, rather, 3 and 4, let, let sexual immorality and all impurity not even be named among you. And then Revelations 2.20, I have this thing against you, that because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality. you got to know that this letter was written to Christians in where? Rome. Rome was perhaps the most promiscuous city that the face of the earth has ever seen. Sexual permissiveness was not only openly practiced, it was openly encouraged. So these are Roman Christians who have just come to Christ. They have never, ever heard anyone make a call to sexual purity. Never, ever. Because sexual permissiveness is is all they know. They're highly promiscuous, as I've said. and never before heard the call to live holy life. That word abstinence (laughs) was never in their vocabulary. I remember growing up in the 70s, not really growing up, I was a grown man by then. But in the 70s and the 80s, America's most noted atheist, Madeleine O'Hare. Some of you might not know her. Some of you know. She was the one that put a ban to all public praying in school, successfully. She was the one who banned NASA from getting astronauts in space to pray. She succeeded on all counts. She was a very fierce and very (laughs) productive atheist, so to speak. And one of the things she said in her interview, I remember, was this. She says, why get all hang up about sexual sins, you Christians? She says, when the bull is ready, he looks for the first cow. And uh, he says, you should be able to sow your seeds, just like that. So, Rome was brought up with that kind of teaching, like Madeleine O'Hare. That's a sort of teaching that, that pervaded the city of Rome. So, this call comes very strange to the people in this letter. You have to understand that. This is the first time they ever heard anyone telling them that you've got to be pure sexually. Never heard of it before. Now, this call is necessary because sexual purity matters to God. So much you won't ever believe it. You don't fully understand. God sanctified sex. He made it holy. Some people conclude that sex must be dirty to God. That's why he's putting all these boundaries with sex. If sex were dirty to God, why would he write the Song of Songs, which until today you are quite embarrassed to read it in public. If he were get up all hung up about sex, why would he have written Numbers 16, Hebrews 13, 1 Corinthians 7? You know something? God is never bashful about sex. God talks about sex very openly, very simply. It's us. It's us, the Christians, that get hung up about sex. It wasn't until 550 A.D., did the church begin to allow the public reading of the book of Song of Songs after the Council of Constantinople? If you were a Jew, you couldn't—you were not allowed to read the Song of Songs until you touch the age of 30. Talk about who is bashful about sex. Uh, and today, even today, we continue to be quite embarrassed. Now, I must say that I have never preached through the book of Song of Songs And I think part of the reason is I'm rather bashful about some things that are written there. So who is the one who is bashful? Think about it. Uh, Howard Hendricks said something beautiful. He says, we should not be ashamed to discuss what God is unashamed to create. God thought of sex so beautiful, so delicately beautiful that he invented it. God invented sex because he thought of it as so delicately beautiful and sweet God created both sexually to be both erotic and holy now that is something we don't fully understand how could something be how could something be erotic and holy and they can come together so beautifully we don't fully understand God creates sex so that a man and his wife may be able to express in the most deepest, beautiful way their trust, their commitment to one another. I've always said this, and I'll say it again, that the human species is the only species that makes love face to face. Other creatures do not make love face to face. So why would God create us in such a way? It's because of the word "yada" in Hebrew. And that comes from the eyes. You're looking in the eyes of someone you love so much when you're making love. You're giving yourself fully. You're saying, I'm committed to you. I love you. I cherish you. I nourish you. It's knowing. And Adam yada his wife. And she conceived and bore a child. Now that was in the Hebrew text. And Adam knew his wife. And she conceived and bore a child. Remember that to emphasize the virgin birth, when Mary was pregnant, the Bible insists that the writer of the word of God include this line in the text, and that is, Joseph had not known her. Joseph had not known her, yada, meaning have sexual intercourse. See, to emphasize the virgin birth, when Mary was pregnant, the Bible writers insist that that line must be put in the Bible. And Joseph hadn't known her. And she herself, when told by the angel that she would conceive and bear a child, what did she say? How could this be, seeing that I have never known a man? Yada, a man. Let's not forget that marriage was instituted, instituted before the fall. So sex did not come after the fall. Sex came before the serpent came into the picture. What chapter of the Bible did the serpent come into the picture? Genesis 3. At the end of Genesis 2, before the serpent came in, what did God say is, and a man shall leave his father and mother And be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That Greek word there, soma, body. Two bodies becoming one body. In sexual union, two people become one flesh. The reason Paul says you should never visit a prostitute because when a man has sex with a prostitute, he becomes one soma. With her. And that effect is never easily erased. And this is why people who have had sex with people who are not theirs by covenant vows find that there are stuff that's very hard to get rid of. We don't fully understand this. Psychologists don't fully understand this, that how this should be. But somehow, Sexual sins have a way of damaging you quite permanently in your spirit. The sin of fornication, unless the Lord heals. And God can heal. And if this morning there are some of you here who have fallen that way, remember God heals. He can. What psychologists may find hard to heal, God heals and he will. But the point is this. Overeating can be overcome stolen goods can be returned lies can be owned up and retracted but the sexual act once committed with another person causes some very deep radical change deep in the soul it cannot be easily undone richard foster say richard foster says you do not have a body you are a body you don't have a spirit you are spirit and that which touches the body touches the spirit very deeply. And sex involving more than just a body is a way of creating that one love that the that Hebrew calls hesed, and that is covenantal love. So sex is more than just an act. It is a covenant. And the most compelling reason why you should never marry a non-Christian is this. What has light in common with darkness. So God prohibits sexual intimacy outside marriage not because you'll get disease. God prohibits marriage, uh, sex outside marriage not because you'll get pregnant. The only reason God prohibits sex outside marriage is that you pretend to have a covenant when you do not have a covenant. And that is the strongest reason why God prohibits Sexual act outside marriage. And that brings me to the thing that Paul comes very close to saying why we should treat each other with great love and then bringing up all the sexual imageries because the way we treat each other in a sexual manner that is not proper would demean that person, would deface the image of God in that person. Lust, for example, is not love. Last is an agitated longing. It's a frightening craving to possess the claw, to consume. And you can virtually see it in some men's eyes, and even some women's eyes today. Last dehumanizes a person who bears the image of God. And this is precisely precisely why pornography is wrong. Pornography is wrong because people who indulge in pornography do not even bother to look into the eyes of the person they are looking at. There is no intimacy. There is no cherishing of that person. There is no caring of that person. How could you? And it's just an image. My younger brother, who is a, is a medical doctor, my younger brother told me that when he was in medical school for his classes in anatomy, they had to work on a cadaver. A cadaver is, is a real body, a real dead body. And he would tell me that all the time that he works on the cadaver, there is a, ple- there's a piece of linen over the eyes of the cadaver. Why? Because you must never see this person that you're working on as a real person who at one time had dreams, had aspirations had a family, had hopes. Because if you look at that specimen that way, you couldn't carry on your work. You'd be too affected. So the eyes are always covered. And that's why we even give that object a name, cadaver. It's from the Latin word, the one who has fallen. Therefore, he's not a real person now. He's an object. It's a specimen that you work on. Now, this is why... Pornography is so sinful. You're treating that image as an object for your last. There's no intimacy, there's no covenant love between the two. You deface the image of God. And God takes this so seriously that his warning is this. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And then he says it again, do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor sexual perverts will ever inherit the kingdom of God. You've got to take this very seriously. Some of you, I do not know you very well. I do not know where you're coming from. You've got to take this very seriously. No idolater, no sexual perverts, no immoral person will ever inherit the kingdom of God. All of us, we've got to work hard on our sexual purity. All of us. Why is this? It is loving one another. True love for one another goes out of your way to care for that person, to ask for her welfare, to provide for her need, not to see her as an object of your last. And this is so powerful that when Jesus says love one another, He gives sexual imagery. So we've got to pay attention there. So that's the negative command. Cast off the work of darkness. Now let's push on to the positive command, and that is this. Put on the armor of light. Okay, so we've been touching on cast off the work of darkness. Now positively, we're to put on the armor of light, verse 12. Walk as in the daytime. In other words, be the same person when you are in the dark. As you are when you're in the light. Moody loves to ask this question Who are you in the dark when no one is watching? I like that very much. As a minister, as a pastor, I take that sort of challenge very seriously. Am I the same person as I am before you Sunday after Sunday? Am I the same person in the light as I am in the dark when no one is watching? This is so important that God says, put on the armor of light. It is an armor. If you're the same person in the dark as you are in the light, you'll be a very humble man, a very contented man, joyous man, because there's nothing to hide. You come clean, because you are clean. What a way to live. If you are shadowy, if you are manipulative, If you're double-minded, if you're not in the light as you are in the dark, you won't stand for very long. You will collapse. I remember Os Guinness makes a lot about Pablo Picasso. Now, very few of you know, I don't know, maybe a lot of you know more about Pablo Picasso. If you did, you would know that he was a voracious violator of people. He used people. He manipulated people, especially women. He called himself a manitor. A minotaur is a creature with half goat, I think, and half man who devoured maidens. And uh, he was like that. Many of his mistresses would say he would rape us in the morning and then he would paint. It's as if he can't paint unless he has raped a few People, only one mistress stood wholesome to the to to the the very end. Her name is Francois Gilot, and Francois Gillot would often say, and she's 40 years younger than Picasso. And she would always say this: "I would go, I would have to go to Pablo Picasso every day, like Joan of Arc, wearing." The armor of truth. Fancy that. I would have to go to Pablo every day, like Joan of Arc, wearing the armor of truth. I like that very much. You know something? People around you may be manipulative, people around you may be devouring you, but if you're always truthful, if you're always wearing the armor of truth, always speaking truth, always being truthful, no chance anyone can pull you down. No chance. When all have fallen, you will still be standing. And so this is the text for us. Put on the armor of truth. And I pray that if we start this new church in this new building, let's be truthful to one another. Let's speak truthfully. Let's be truthful. Let's not be sly. Let's not be manipulative. Let's not shy away from other people. Let's be easy with one another because we are upright, we are truthful, we are clean inside. We are the same person in the dark as we are in the light. My final question is this. Why all this? Why all this injunction? Why all this command? (laughs) That is this. Answer is verse 11. Time is very short. The hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. One of the saddest verse for me personally in the Bible is Jeremiah eight twenty: The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we're not saved. Very sad. I read that as a very young man. The harvest is past, the summer is ended. And we are not saved. Jeremiah was weeping for his people and he's saying, look, the Babylonians are just on the edge of our corridor and you're so far from God. I fear, I fear that we would be like that, that very close to our deathbed we're still that far from God because we haven't been redeeming the time, we haven't been careful about how we spend our time in other words they were running out of time the people in Jeremiah's day were running out of time I spoke to a man about 8 years ago looking at a building across the road and he says you look at that old couple there they had thoughts to invest on that building but they ran out of time And then this week, for the last two weeks, rather, for some reason I've had something to do with a very old builder, an old carpenter, who is doing a little project for me. And so for the last two weeks, I've been in and out of his shack, his garage. I tell you, he has a collection of some of the finest New Zealand exotic timber. Matai, kauri. Uh, Macrocapa, Rimu, and he says, Andrew, I'm running out of time. I would have loved to turn that block into this. I would have loved to turn that into that. He had all this thing in his head. And all those years, it's just been piling up in his garage. He says, I'm running out of time. Two years ago, my wife and I took 40 days away. To pray for our future as to when the Lord would have us step down. So, it's for the last two years now that I have this deep sense that I'm running out of time. There have been so many things I would have loved to teach Christ's sanctuary. So many things in my heart, so many things in my bookshelf, so many things just in my being that I would have loved to teach epistemology, philosophy. Culture, arts, aesthetics, apologetics. I'm running out of time. I know I'm running out of time. And Gloria would often pray that God would give me time to fulfill what she calls my broken dreams. I want to say this that old couple across the road ran out of time. The old carpenter that I'm dealing with this last two weeks is running out of time. I am running out of time. You too. You may look very young as I stand here. Very quickly it comes. All too quickly. Because it wasn't so long ago that I was learning to play the guitar and trying to sing like Elvis. Didn't look too long ago. Look, look at me now. So fast. It will come to you just as fast. So the word for us is redeem the time for the days are evil. So this call to love one another is great. This call to be truthful is great. But it all hinges on the fact that time is very short. Don't waste it. Don't squander it. You have one life, not two. Use it for the glory of God. Shall we pray? Lord we bless you for this time together the very first time we meet in this new place we're still joyful and we Lord but please do not let it be that a month or two from now we are back to where we were losing our loyalty losing our focus forgetting about your kingdom Lord forbid it that that would be so, but rather galvanize us. Help us to be riveted to the cause of your kingdom. Help us to know that time is indeed very short and we need to live for you. Yesterday is gone. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. And this is why we call it present. Present. And so, Father, help us to live in the present, not to live in the past, neither run ahead and live in the future, but be people of the present and to be alive for you, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.